0: Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jerry Pickney, and I'm joined today by Randy Vess. Randy, thanks so much for taking the time to come on.
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
0: So this is the first time that we've been in a room together, and I want to just start by saying that you have the best mustache of anybody who's ever come on, <laughs> and so you're already you're already doing good in that department. It's a um, good start. Yeah, man. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little a little bit about yourself, um, where you come from, and and how you got to Paragold and, and doing what you do.
1: Uh, well, I grew up in uh, central Arkansas, so a small town, Carlisle, uh, just outside of Little Rock. It's about 2,600 people.
0: Go Bisons, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. Mm. That's a shout out, right? Uh, <laughs> my neighborhood like that. He's from Brinkley. Uh, I grew up there, grew up um, working on a fish farm, family fish farm. So that was uh, a... Like was a catfish what a, farm? Uh Bait fish. Okay. So, small minnows. Yeah. So, yeah, that was good motivation to get my education. <laughs> <laughs> Is that pretty hard work. Yeah, yeah, some manual labor. About the same hours as I run right now, though. But, um, but I grew up there, played sports there through high school, uh, graduated, and then uh,
0: – What sports did you play in school?
1: Uh, was, well, we were a football school, so big football dynasty. Um, and uh, played football all through high school, baseball – what position? Uh, football. Yeah. I uh, see, tailback. Uh, well, I say, you got flaker, a good tailback. Uh, special teams. You know, it was Ironman football, so we played, you know, special teams, defense, offense, defensive back. Both uh, ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we never got to rest. <laughs> so, uh, baseball, and then uh, I stopped playing basketball at seventh grade because I uh, obviously didn't have the height <laughs> for it. <laughs> so, I figured that out real quick. I uh, ran track and then, you know, off season weightlifting. Uh, I really enjoyed that, obviously, because I still do it. Yeah. Um, uh, once I left there, I ended up uh, in Jonesboro for uh, going to college up here. So that was around uh, 2001, 2002. Okay. And really, I've been up here ever since. So started college up here, and really, I was a non traditional college student. Um, Kind of got in my first semester, and uh, at the time, my dad said, you know, hey, I'll pay for a semester of your school, and, you know, after that, it's on you. And, uh, you know, that semester went by pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there going, how am I going to continue going to school and, uh, and you know, pay for it? And uh, my dad was in the military for about 37 years. Oh, wow. So uh, I called him up, and I said, what's the military do for school? And he said, I'll meet you at the recruiter's office tomorrow. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, so that happened uh, happened pretty quick and I uh, signed up the next day. And that's when I actually got into uh, the National Guard, Arkansas National Guard.
0: You said that was what year? 2002. 2002. So, April. so this is right after 9-11. Yeah. The world's ready to go to war.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, As April, April 2002 is when I, I think the exact date's April 11th. I'd have to look. That's a long time ago, but. Okay. Um, but I enlisted then into uh, A75th Engineer Battalion as an enlisted uh, private, mm-hmm. so what you would say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had a, uh, I had a ship date to go to basic training and our advanced individual training after that. And it was – usually you'll get a ship date, and they'll be further out like you're looking at a year out. So I was looking at the, the next summer of uh, 2003 – um, to ship to basic training in AIT. And uh, somehow my dad pulled some strings. I don't know how. He probably...
0: 37 years, man. He I guess,
1: yeah. But uh, he called me. You know, this was April time frame, and he called me. And I was uh, I was in Russellville hanging out with some friends, and he called me, and he said, Hey, I got uh, I got some things switched on your, your ship date. And uh, I said, Well, what'd you get switched? And he said, You're leaving in June. And I was like... <laughs> june of next year he's like no this year i was like that's like four weeks away dad he said yeah you'll be fine I yeah was like, <laughs> so so that that's kind of how it started and uh you were already in good shape right uh i guess i mean i think honestly i think probably in better shape now than i was then yeah. but um you know we uh we got ready and uh shipped and i i was uh what we call now i, I don't know if they still call it osa it's basically you're going straight through basic training and then your advanced individual training on your your job specialty uh, a lot of a lot of people my age would do us what's called a split op training so they would go to basic training um, one summer and then they would come back go to school and then the next summer they would go to their advanced individual training so they didn't have to miss any school okay um so i just wanted to get it out of the way and and i knew that i was going to miss a semester coming out of it because it was going to lead into you know August September time frame of that summer but just to get it out of the way so I decided to do that straight through um, and any anyways ended up uh, Fort Wood Missouri so not far from here it's about four hours is where I did my basic in AIT and uh, graduated uh, September-ish came back home and uh, kind of just hung out till school started back. I guess it would be that January semester. And uh, started back in school, got all my education benefits started. Uh, I know my readiness NCO at the time loved me because I was in his office about every other day making sure my school money was getting rolling. And <laughs> I, was getting I don't paid. blame you, man. <laughs> so, um, you know, I got that started and then um, got into that semester. And then first thing was we got, uh, we got called up. So we got deployed my first semester back in school. So 2003? Yes, 2003. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's where 2003. where were you deployed to? Well, we we were originally attached to First Cav out of Fort Hood, Texas. And we went to our, our MOBE site. So you always go to a MOBE site and do some train-up. So we went to our MOBE site, Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, so while we were there doing our train-up, it was uh, – It was just uh, Alpha Company at the time, A-75th. And um, Colonel Michael Henderson, he was the uh, commander, company commander at the time. He's currently the uh, Arkansas Guard Chief of Staff. So he was a commander, and we went there for, I can't tell you how many weeks. It was was pretty extensive. I want to say two to three months was a Mm -hmm. train-up. And while we were there, we actually got stood down. So that's when we ended up uh, doing about, I think about nine months, they reassigned us to a stateside security mission in the uh, beautiful state of Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, this north, nor- very northeast corner of Oregon. Oh, wow. So there's a uh, – Nowhere else to go? No, no, surrounded by vegetated desert. <laughs> so there's a, there's a chemical weapons arsenal out there, and there's one similar if you're familiar with the Pine Bluff one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very similar to okay. that. So we replaced a uh, Texas, I think it was a Texas National Guard unit that was currently conducting security operations on that chemical weapons arsenal, I think at 20, about 22 square miles. Um, and they, uh, they were currently in the process of building a burn facility uh, to burn off uh, mustard and nerve agent gas. So we spent about nine wonderful months out there roving around and securing that what was that like, like uh, were you wanting to be deployed
0: or were yeah. you like glad they asked well you to it was step down? uh
1: i don't know it was bittersweet you you know you join uh, and you know that especially after 9-11 you know that's a possibility mm-hmm. and it, well you actually know you know it's going to happen um so you know it is bittersweet you want to go over there and you want to do uh, you want to do your duty but then at the same time you know you're you're kind of happy to, to stay home and see your friends and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it, that was the case for me because it was also quick. You know, came right out right out of basic, got back in school, and they're like, ah, you're not going to school. We're, mm-hmm. you know, you're deploying. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I looked at it. And and you know, we did spend. You know, it was spending almost a year away from your friends and family being out there. I mean, it, it wasn't is was nothing compared to you know what the guys, you know deploying over at the time the big fight then was iraq so you know it was nothing like that but um it yeah it was bittersweet so. yeah
0: so you're there for you said nine months and then eventually you go there i mean you when were you deployed overseas was that immediately from oregon did y'all come back home for a no bit?
1: no we came back home so i okay. that, was, that was when i was enlisted i was a i was a private so okay. i was making like uh m- Minimum wage In the army <laughs> um, Thankfully they fed us and <laughs> For free right um, You weren't getting
0: rich over there in Oregon
1: No no not by any means um, So after that Is uh, you know I came home and, and I got back in school And I spent I think almost A little over six years Enlisted Um. My dad was an officer. He went through the uh, ROTC program at uh, University of Conway, I believe, and uh, commissioned there. And when I got back, I kind of started looking at, uh, you know, upward mobility in the enlisted side, you know, promotions, you know. And, mm-hmm. and it just wasn't there. Um, it, it kind of uh, bottlenecked. So there, there wasn't a lot of upward progression. Uh, and I kind of reached a point where I was like, you know what? What's the next challenge? And mm. so I started looking at the uh, the officer route, and I talked to my dad a little bit about it. And, and um, I would, by that time I'd had um, I had about ninety, almost ninety college credit hours. So I had two options: I could do uh, ROTC program, or I could do what's called the uh, OCS program, which is Officer Candidate School, and that's done by the state. Um, and I knew with with the OCS program, I could commission as an officer sooner. Uh, so um, again, went to an officer recruiter at the time and, and we started doing the, the packet for that and uh, got into the OCS program down at uh, Camp Robinson, Arkansas. It's a 233rd uh, RTI, Regimental Training Institute. And uh, started OCS there and they had two options. So you could do uh traditional which is 18 months you go one weekend um one weekend a month for 18 months uh kind of like a traditional guardsman you know Mm -hmm. you're spending Mm -hmm. uh drill weekends and then you have your two weeks of what's called annual training but ours were replaced by you know our phases of ocs so phase one we spent uh two weeks in uh kansas and then came back and we did about traditional 14 months worth of drills in the ocs program down there at um, camp robinson and then you finish your final phase is phase three so you go back and we went to uh fort lewis washington again right so i'm back in fort lewis Uh, but this time as an officer candidate finishing my final phase of of ocs so I had to do the uh, traditional phase because in order to do the accelerated phase, which is eight weeks, you just go eight weeks straight through and you're done, mm-hmm. you're commissioned as an officer, um, you had to have 90 hours. So when they had the board for that, which they board uh, to go to accelerated, um, they looked at my packet and I had I think I had 88 hours. So I was two hours shy, wow. and I, I pitched a fit, but they didn't care. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you weren't able to twist their arm?
1: No, no, not the uh, not the tackle. Like, Randy,
0: you're a good guy. You no. know what? We're going to give you those two hours. They don't care. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what were some of the lessons that you learned about leadership um, and OCS? Are there any that stick with you? Um, I think or just the, lessons in general that you learned?
1: Uh, the main one is um, – I guess you would say a big term for it is, uh, decisiveness is, is being able to make a decision. Hmm. Uh, so they, they really harp on you on that is, you know, cause you're, you're putting a leadership role in your training and you're going to be put in a stressful environment and they want you to make a decision. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're not looking at you to, um, make the decision, the correct decision. Um, they know you're going to make the wrong decision mm-hmm. most of the time because, you're an officer candidate and you're scared mm-hmm. to death and you're getting screamed at. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know that they, they're, they're expecting you to make the wrong decision, but they want you to make the decision quickly. Absolutely. Right. So like they say, it, it's better to make the wrong decision in training versus making the wrong decision in combat. Sure. Um, so, you know, that, that was one of the, one of the probably biggest lessons that has stuck with me is, you know, making that decision and, and making it quickly
0: are there any um are there any tips you can give because i mean life is filled with decisions right and mm-hmm. most people listening to this are not in the military but are there any carryover like tips from the military to civilian life when it comes to making decisions that you have continued to carry with you um anything that sticks out as far as how to make good decisions
1: yeah, so I have – and I this is probably not the best way, but this is – I tell a lot of the junior officers in our battalion and, and when I taught at ROTC um, kind of how, you know, to make big decisions uh, that you do have time to make. Um, and what I've always done is – and I did this when I opened up the CrossFit affiliate um, when I was deciding if I wanted to do that or if I wanted to – you know, venture off and, and use my my degree somewhere in the civilian sector. Mm-hmm. Um, is I'll take um, you know what what I've got on the table to make a decision, and on the left, take a piece of paper. On the left hand side, I'll write down all the pros of it. And on the right hand side, I will write down on the con all mm-hmm. the cons of it. And mm-hmm. I'll spend you know a week, two weeks, however long I have. Uh, and you know if if something continues to you know, develop and new ideas come up, you know, Hey, is that a pro to it? Or is it a, you know, a con? Yeah. And I'll just list them. And that way I've got it and I can sit there and look at it and totally. I can study it. Yes. And that's, that, that has always helped me uh, make a decision. It's, it's pretty uh, straight forward. Yeah. It's
0: well, what you're talking about is, and it's so important is stepping back out of the situation mm-hmm. because when you're in the middle of it, I'm sure, especially in combat, right? Like, when you're right in the middle of it, sometimes you can be so in the thick of things, whether it's combat or relational strife, right, in your own marriage or yeah. a situation where you're kind of going sideways with your boss or whatever, and you're so in it, your judgment's cloudy. Yeah. But when you're able to kind of step back and look at it, mm-hmm. you can become a little bit more sober-minded. Yeah. So and
1: it's it's helpful for me because, I, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, and my, my wife could tell you she'd probably laugh and shake her head yes, but my memory's terrible. I have... Terrible memory, and, and I I blame it on the guns and the, the big cannons, but uh, I, think it, I don't think it's that. I think it's just I have bad memory. I would blame it on the guns and cannons, <laughs> but that's, too. Man. That's my excuse, right? Yeah. It's um, a lot
0: better one than I have.
1: Yeah, but, but you know. I'm blaming
0: them out on seminary. I mean, uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know. Nope, <laughs> can we use age, too? <laughs> but, you know, look, it, it, it lets you look at it. So, you know, I can't put all those, I guess you would say, bullet points in my head and remember them. And sit there and, and say, okay, well, this is this is why I'm going to make this decision uh, to do this or to not do this. I can't remember all that. So, you know, if I have it written in front of me, then mm-hmm. it, it makes it so much easier.
0: Yeah. So you finish OCS, and where do you go from there?
1: So you finish OCS, and then um, kind of if you remember we talked about earlier, um, you have basic training in, in AIT. Okay. So when you complete basic training, you're not fully qualified um in your job. So you have to go to your specialty training. Well, OCS is the same way. So you're you're commissioned as an officer, but next step is you have to be qualified in the the branch that you want to uh, pursue as an officer. And then I grew up in the engineer world. So I wanted to pursue uh, being an officer in the engineer world. So back then it was called uh, EOBC, which is engineer officer basic course. And that took me back to uh, lovely Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, but this time as an officer, as a second lieutenant, um, which a lot of people will say you're just a glorified private, you get paid more. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you go back there for uh, your next on training. Uh, and that was a, uh, what they call it, active duty side. They call it PCS, permanent change of station. So you're there for six months. Um, and you're attending you're basically in college you're attending class uh, and you have some field training exercises uh, because you know what we deal with uh, engineer world is we we deal with horizontal engineering we deal with vertical uh, we get into plumbing electrical Mm. uh, don't ask me any questions about plumbing or electrical (laughs) Uh, and then you know what our selling point is uh, demolition so you know we get to we get to mess with uh, demolition, C4, TNT, things like that. Yeah. So, you know, the blow it's stuff a bunch, up. A yeah. yeah. bunch of boys
0: are like, oh. Yeah.
1: yeah. So when you tell, you know, young young kids, they get to blow stuff up and, you know, sold. You get You're, paid to do sign it. Them, yeah. the dotted it's legal. Line. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in the classroom. Uh, it's a lot of, uh, you know, textbook um, learning, studying. And, um, you know, I was at a disadvantage. Uh, you know, my degree was in from ASU's is in uh, marketing management, mm. and so you're attending EOBC with um, active duty component. You know, individuals that are commissioned from OCS, uh, ROTC, and West Point. So all over, uh, all over the nation, and and you know you're you've got a pretty large class size, so you get to know them, and um, most of uh, most of the good friends I made there, they were. You know, their degree in civil engineering. So I'm like, man, you guys got the, you got to step up on me. I was like, so I was studying my butt off.
0: Yeah, as a challenging,
1: yeah, it was. It, it really was challenging. Um, but you know, I had you know, a bunch of good guys with me, and and they helped out a lot. Um, so you know, we uh, we spent, I think, man, I want to say, I'm, six months sounds long. I want to say more is about four and a half. Um that I spent there at, at, Fort Leonard Wood. And then, um, you know, once, once I completed that, you graduate there and then you're pinned, um, the, uh, the engineer, uh, insignia is a castle. So they, you know, pin the, the castle on your collar. There's mm. a song you can look up and everything yeah. about it. So, uh, don't ask me to sing yeah. that either. Uh, so is that a pretty
0: meaningful moment.
1: It, it really is. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's a military ceremony. Um, and and there's, Two that I can remember very well are uh, basic training graduation. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you got your drill sergeants there, and we're, we're practicing because your family and friends are coming to watch you graduate, and you're doing all the marching, drilling ceremony. Uh, you're doing the uh, presenting of the colors, and it, it's just a really neat, you know, very squared away um, event. Um, so it it is, and especially on the, uh, you know, it's just a sense of accomplishment. So it, it, was a, it was a neat event. So family came up and uh, had the whole graduation ceremony. And then after that, you know, you're, you're cut loose. And then you go back and you're assigned to a uh, company. Mm-hmm. And I think then uh, it was uh, we had a uh, engineer company in Mark Tree, Arkansas. So that was my first assignment as a platoon leader, was in Mark Tree.
0: Platoon, uh, was that 50 guys? 50 guys in the platoon? How many?
1: Uh, you're looking squad size, say 30 to 40. 30 to 40. Okay. Yeah. Somebody out there that knows the numbers, like, <laughs> no, that's wrong. Some platoon leader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so,
0: yeah, where do you go from there?
1: Um, well, I had not completed college yet, right? So, um, to be a, a commission officer, you have to have an undergrad degree. Um, so I continued to go to college. And, and I got this is where I got more into the uh, non-traditional student, um, just because of along with um, my EOBC, I had to miss a couple more semesters of school. I had to actually miss two because uh, it started early and ended into the – started in the spring when end of the spring when and ended in the – The fall one, so there's a year there that I missed. So I come back, and at this time, um, I'm I'm what you would call a traditional uh, M-Day soldier. So I'm just doing it one weekend a month, and then you've got your two weeks of annual training um, during the year, and then... The rest of the other, I guess you'd say, 28 days of the month, I'm going to school. And uh, I got a, uh, I call it, it was part-time according to the hours, uh, but it was like 30 to 39 hours a week. Wow. Uh, working for an industrial distributor in Jonesboro. And I was just a delivery driver. I was driving parts and stuff to all these factories uh, all over northeast Arkansas. And I did that for a while. Um and I enjoyed it. I actually did. It was, a, it was a low stress job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I liked, I like the guys I worked with, uh, still, you know, think about them to this day and it's been that many years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, so I worked there and I went to school. I started going to school more, um, in the evening and at nighttime, uh, just because I would, I would change my hours and I'd, I would come in early and I'd work straight through, take a 30 minute lunch. That way I could, get everything done I need to get done. And then I'd go to school at, at night. So this, uh, this lasted, you know, pretty good while. And then, um, you know, we got the, uh, we got the call up to deploy again. And that was, um, 2009 timeframe. If you remember the ice storm. Yeah. That's That's right. right. Yeah. So I was, I was a student at that time and, uh, We the guard, and I'm sure you're familiar with it because you've probably seen them around Paragould. Is you know we do uh, state active duty missions, so you know our we support the state. You know, uh, state emergencies, Mm -hmm. tornadoes, Mm -hmm. floods, things like that. So that uh, that big ice storm that happened back in uh, was it early 2009? Yeah, it was. It's like January. Was it Was it then? Okay,
0: January, February. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I was in school at that time, and and I was a. uh, I believe I was a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, and um, that uh, you know that hit pretty hard, and uh, it, it took down a lot of uh, you know local towns, you mm-hmm. know water supply, mm-hmm. electrical, and all that. So, um, you know they they requested assistance through us, and there's a process that it goes through uh, from you know the the town leadership, the mayor, and it goes you know down to Little Rock. And then they push that back to us, and and we got put on uh, state active duty orders for quite a while. And in the beginning, it's volunteer, so they'll you know your uh, your full time staff will reach out to you and say, "Hey, you know this is uh, this is coming down the pipeline. You know, it's something you'd be interested in." And I was like, "Well, getting you know first lieutenant pay versus minimum wage over here yeah. over my job, yep. and, absolutely." Yep. Um, so I volunteered to do that, and, and we were we were on uh, orders for a few weeks, and we were just doing uh, we were running missions uh, to these local small towns, uh, hauling generators, um, taking uh, you know food supply, and just running back and forth. And um, that was uh, I want to say it was a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. just two weeks maybe, um, and then. I didn't have an issue with my school. My professors were very understanding, and they said, "Yeah, absolutely. You know, we'll we'll catch you up when you get back." And um, so had that, and then came back, um, got off that, that whole Hawaii storm, and then um, when we were doing that, we started hearing rumors that you know, hey, there's a you know there's a notification coming down that you guys are getting deployed. And uh, So that, that came pretty quick, and that was when we got the notification that we were going to uh, uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, which is the fight in Afghanistan. I think at the time, the, the president had, I think it was a 30,000 to 40,000 troop increase, um, and that's when we received our notification.
0: What was, when, you, when were you deployed? What time of the year?
1: Um well it was similar to our first one so we did a uh, you know we do a, a train up uh, and it was about uh, you spend a you spend a little while stateside
0: but you left home when
1: left home see that was at the end i know we flew in country january 28th of 2010 okay but we ended up being in Fort McCoy Wisconsin for 3 three months prior to that.
0: Did y'all do the big send off where the buses are there, families are coming, you're hugging. Yeah,
1: we did. It you <clears> know what was it, that
0: what was that like? So you here you are you've done all your training and this is the real deal this time, like, we you're going to Afghanistan. Yeah.
1: And yeah it was, I like
0: which is not a
1: safe place. Yeah, it sucked. I mean it was you know, you see the hardest part is was for me, which you know, before that I had sent um I'd sent my dad off to Iraq. So he went to Iraq with 875th on their first uh, overseas deployment. Wow. When he and, was how old? Oh, man, don't get me in trouble. He was he was in his 50s. Man, so
0: he was still going out then? Yeah. So you've seen that.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, I sent him off, and, and that was when I was in OCS. So if you're in OCS, you're considered what's called non-deployable. So you're not – You're not going to be deployed with the unit that you're going back to or going to. Mm. You have to stay and complete your training. Well, I tried to drop out OCS to go with him, but Mm. he wasn't having it. He said, it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, So, anyways, you know, I got to kind of experience it from both sides. Yeah, dude. uh, Sending him off, and then...
0: What was the hardest part? Was it... Stepping on the bus and like rolling off, like, and or was it actually the hugging and?
1: Yeah, know. it was probably the you know seeing, you know your you've got your you know your mom there, you got your dad there, you got brothers sisters, but I mean w- once we get on the bus, it was which I'd done it once before, you know when yeah. we were we ended up yeah. being in Oregon, putting the yeah, yeah so mission. it it was um it was still you know it was still hard. That was the hardest part, but once you get on the bus, you're, you know, you're rubbing elbows with the guys that you've been training with, kind for, of pumping each other up, yeah, encouraging one another. We're in this together. Three, four months, right? So you've been with these guys, and and you've, you know, you've built that relationship, um, and and you know they're they're like your family. So moving forward from there, it was you got that small window of, you know. Waiting to get on the bus, and you're anxious. You're like, God, just get us on the bus, get me out of this sad zone. So, yeah. and and the, I think the hardest part for me was um, looking around at at uh, a lot of the guys that had young kids, and I was oh, like, man, that's, that's tough seeing that. Because
0: you're going, to, I guess the place y'all went in Afghanistan, you were going into combat.
1: Yeah, so we we went to. Um, Manas Airfield, which is, if I pronounce it right, Kazakhstan, which is old Russia or Soviet Union. So that's where we staged it. It was an Air Force <coughs> base there. We flew uh, commercial into there. And then from there, we spent uh, we spent a few days, and then we took a uh, a military flight from there and went straight south to Afghanistan. I think we all flew on a C-17, which is like, you're familiar with a c-130 mirror seals a big green planes that fly over yeah Yeah. fixed wing okay kind of like that but bigger um so we flew in to uh kandahar airfield on that landed um landed on kandahar airfield and uh (laughs) it's kind of it's funny now but it wasn't too funny back then when we landed our uh executive officer uh, luke mccartney he's a good friend of mine and i grew up in the military with him he uh we landed and you know they dropped the gate and we're hearing some pops off in the the background and I was like what is that? He's like oh, they're mortaring over there on the south side of the airfield. I was like is it friendly or enemies? And oh no, it's enemy. I was like oh it's good. <laughs> well, he's like yeah welcome to <laughs> oh, Afghanistan yeah. right? What was the
0: <laughs> terrain like over there? <clears throat> like when you, what are you seeing when you get when you step off the plane?
1: Um so it's it's desert but then you've also got like you know mountains yeah. You know, jutting up in the distance. So, um, eastern part of Afghanistan is uh, very mountainous. Are you um, surrounded Pakistan. by mountains? We weren't, okay. so we we didn't know exactly where we were going when we got there, which was awesome. So you know, we're we're in the mountains or we're in you know the desert. Um, I think I believe it's called the Red Desert, which is a Kandahar Helmand province, and then over on the Pakistan borders where it's real mountainous so you know if if we're gonna end up in the mountains you know we we were acclimated from training in wisconsin because i mean it was cold up there when we were training uh snow on the ground but you know we we spent uh we spent a good part of two months at kandahar airfield which is um kind of like a hub where all the u.s forces are coming in um and then from there, they're pushing out to their smaller operation centers, uh, FOBs, which is a Ford Operation Base, or even smaller than that. They've got what's called a COP. Back then, it was called a COP, which is a combat outpost. Um, so we spent. that like, like what you see in like Restrepo
0: documentary yeah. things. There.
1: Yeah. So exactly. So they're they're on a they're on a COP. You know, very small, maybe a platoon, yeah. company size element. Um, a FOB. I think on our FOB we had. Uh, with our company, which we were considered a super company, we had 200, a little over 200 uh, troops, and uh, we ended up on a fob uh, west of Kandahar City. What were the living conditions like? We were in in tents, so we had I think they were like 16 man tents. Jeez, um, not a lot of privacy. No, no, we 16 uh, man tents split up by squads. Um, which, you know, luckily we did – they they had, uh, you know, some good supply, I would call it. And we had – we were a- actually able to have little twin bed mattresses. So, you know, we got some comforts of back home. Meals um, or – Meals were uh, the dining facility, what they call it, or the DFAC. It was a tent. Um, and those were contracted out to, like, what we call local nationals. And they prepared – you know meals daily, um, and they had you know typical breakfast, lunch, and, okay. and supper. So you know we we weren't starving yeah. by any means. It, it was it was set up good. And what we was
0: were, your day to day offer? What did it look like for you day to day?
1: Well, we'd so our company we did uh, route clearance, and that's um, we basically uh, drove down the road really slow, looking for roadside bombs. Um, sometimes they would find us. sometimes we would find them. Preferably we' find them, yeah. right. Um, so we had four platoons in our company, and we would, we would all we were on what was called, when we were, first got to kandahar Airfield or CAF, then once we got uh, all our equipment and our vehicles ready to go, we pushed out to uh, Ford Operation Base Wilson. Which was a uh, smaller, you know, smaller footprint, and at the time, the fourth, fourth infantry division, um, they had the uh, I think first battalion, part of their first battalion, twelfth regiment was on Fob Wilson. Um, so I believe they were light infantry, uh, but good dudes. Yeah. Uh, they they were solid, and they'd been operating there for uh, probably about seven to eight months and we came in and what we were is uh was called general support so we had our battle space which is considered a you know it's basically a boundary so think of like a county uh county lines or you know city limits that's considered you know we had a battle space probably a lot larger than a county though so we would drive and uh the main supply routes or you know, if the, the uh, 112th had a mission that they were conducting uh, where they received intel of maybe enemy infill, exfill, they would want us to go in and, and clear the route before they, you know, sent their foot soldiers in. Mm. So, so we did a lot of that, and it wasn't, you know, we were general support. Um, that, I guess that would be considered kind of direct support when they would make a request, but we, we had a gentleman's agreement with them, uh, with their leadership, so we, we got along well with them. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, you scratch our back, we'll scratch your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, you know, they would provide security for us. Um, we would go in and clear some stuff for them. And so we we would operate four platoons, like I said earlier, and we would have uh, set times when we would go out on mission. So I think our mission, we we were early morning to – um, midday, which most of the time it would run way over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would, we would receive uh, each day, you know, hey, these are, these are the routes you're going to clear today. So we would start out and we would co- conduct a deliberate route clearance, which is slow, staring at the side of the road, find something that looks suspicious. We're digging on it a little bit, picking at it. Um, you know, if, if it's nothing, we drive on. If, you know, if we find something, then, you know, we're spending, you could spend anywhere between an hour to six hours sitting on, a, on an IED, you know, clearing it and um, placing C4 on it and blowing it. Um, and then, that, you know, they, they did a lot of intel collection on it because we had an um, EOD with us that was from the Air Force. They were attached to us. So they would roll with us on our patrol, and they, they wanted to collect a lot of intel on these IEDs just to try to capture where they're being manufactured at, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, what what are the similarities of, you know, the IEDs in this uh, this district versus this district? So a lot of intel collection, and that takes time, you know, because they're getting their robot out, and they're, you know, mm-hmm. zipping up to it, and you know, trying to not set it off and then collecting the intel. And then after that, you know, we have to dispose of it, place a C4 on it, and, uh, you know, blow it and do a post-blast analysis on the size of it, things like that. So, it's uh, a little
0: more to it than just finding the ball and blowing it up and moving on.
1: Yeah, sometimes if, if it blew up, you know, when we were interrogating it, it, it was okay, as long as nobody was hurt. We're like, oh, it blew up. I guess we can go on <laughs> so, <laughs> next.
0: Yeah. Uh, did y'all ever face any resistance or come under enemy fire, or were you?
1: Yeah, we did quite a bit. Um, so they had what is really strange. They had what's called fighting season there. I never heard of it. Like, I guess I didn't do my homework before I left. But um, I want to say they they said fighting season starts around April it could be May like I said don't quote me on the dates um so we we were there doing route clearance for a while and it was you know it was pretty light it was like man it's, there's not very much action around here um and especially where we were located which was outside of Kandahar City which Kandahar City is the birthplace of the Taliban so you know we were expecting a lot of resistance um we had to go right through the middle of Kandahar City when we were coming from Kandar Airfield, um, and, you know, we, we didn't receive a lot of resistance. Um, but when fighting season started, you know, I remember the intel telling us, like, you know, this day, let's say it's uh, April 6th, and it was like somebody flipped a switch, and it was just, it was on. So, you know, we would, we would receive, um, you know, small arms fire, um, RPG, um, cruiser weapons. I guess you could compare it to like kind of like our 50 cal machine guns, uh, mortars. Obviously, uh, IEDs. They would set IEDs out, anti personnel, anti vehicle, and it and it it did. It was like flipping a switch, and they were just they they would fight. And, and the the difference was, so I had a bunch of guys in my platoon that. Uh, they fought in Iraq, which I was thankful for. So they had, had some experience. Yes, they and that's what they did in Iraq. They did route clearance, and I'm pretty sure. And I'll go ahead and say that uh, this is truth because it uh, complements a seventy fifth. But they uh, they set the record for IED fines in Iraq. Oh wow! I mean, they were left and right. I mean, I think uh, when the guys saw them rolling down the road, they're happy to see them. Yeah. So was that
0: the same? Uh, same company that my cousin would have been in. eight seventy fifth said with Brian. Yep. Okay. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Right. Um, and uh, you know they did a they did a great job in Iraq, and then you know we had that experience uh, coming with us to Afghanistan. So you know they knew the, they knew what to look for. Um, there were there was a quite a bit of difference in the fighting though in Iraq. You know the the resistance in Iraq they would try to hit you. Uh, with an ID and and you may get like somebody firing at you from behind a small concrete wall or berm. And then as soon as you return a fire, they would be gone. They would run off. Uh, Afghanistan, they would, they would stay and fight. Um, and what was that about? I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they're just braver. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I, I, I never understood it. You know, we, do you remember
0: where you were the first time y'all got shot at?
1: Yeah. We what was were, that?
0: What was that like? Cause I asked, I have a, a friend of mine who has actually uh, passed away now. But, uh, his name is Randy, actually. He's yeah. an Army Ranger and uh, lived in Tacoma, Washington. And he talks about how you get trained for that moment, mm-hmm. but you just never know how someone's going to respond until yeah. a live rounds are coming at you. He's like, because you know, when you're getting shot at with airsoft or whatever in training, it's not you know you're not going to die. But yeah. he's like, it's just literally like you can have – the most well-trained soldier who's just a bad dude and mm-hmm. basic or whatever training, and, and then all of a sudden you start seeing live rounds, yeah, and it's just totally different.
1: It is, it really is, and and I know we were uh, we were doing a patrol down what's called Ring Road uh, or Highway One. It's basically the only paved road in Afghanistan. It runs kind of like a ring all the way around Afghanistan. Uh, we were just west of. Kandahar City in a, a small village uh, called Sondrae and so the fighters there they would use it's a uh, real dense grape fields so if you've ever you can look up the terrain on Google they're grape fields so they build these mud walls by hand and they're I mean they're real thick they're anywhere from you know they can be three feet tall to six feet tall um, and you know they're they're growing grapes but they would come all the way up to the road, you know these great fields, I guess you would call them, and we were just outside of Sangeray and and our vehicles were um, what they called an MRAP, so mine resistant. They had like a V hole bottom, so mm-hmm. if you know you received a blast from the bottom, it would you know absorb shoot the blast yeah. and absorb yeah. it um still you know it could it'll do some damage if the you know the hits right or if the size of the the ID's right and um you know so small arms fire not a huge threat um just due to the uh, up armor on our vehicles um which you know you still have your gunner exposed okay uh so you know they're at risk obviously um but you know the first uh, first one that that we got, I remembered, is an uh, RPG. Uh, it fired and it missed. Uh, it missed the vehicle.
0: An in RPG. Front of it. For those that don't know, what an RPG is?
1: It's basically a shoulder shoulder rocket yeah. fired off the shoulder. Um, a lot of people call it rocket propelled grenade, which that's not what it stands for. I can't remember what exactly what it stands for, but. Um, but we'll just call it a rocket propelled grenade, right? Yeah. So somebody fires one of those bad boys. Shoulder mounted, yeah. yeah. Like uh, think of uh, that's going to get your attention. A though, bazooka, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, uh, I remember it firing, and it, it went between uh, my vehicle and the vehicle in front of me, um, and it uh, hit on the other side of the road and detonated. And then shortly after that, we started receiving what's called small arms fire. So they're you know they're firing with you know their weapon of choice, AK forty seven. Um, and it was just kind of, you're, you're taken by surprise. Yeah. I bet. Um, and, and, that's a good part of, uh, you know, your training and, uh, you know, there's, there's training, everybody does training differently. You know, like you said, your friend Randy was a, mm-hmm. an army ranger. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, you know, very well trained. Um, and how you react in that is going to, you know, depend on your training and, you know, we our what we call our battle drills on, you know, what what do we do if we receive contact from, you know, our right flank, left flank, uh, if we're surrounded or if we have a vehicle going We run through all these scenarios um, to uh, prepare for that. So we do what's called like a crawl walk run, is we'll talk through it and we'll do little drills, uh, what they call rock drills. We'll take, you know, basically rocks and act like they're vehicles and, just we'll set up different scenarios like what do you do if this vehicle gets you know, hit mm-hmm. or goes down or what if we receive fire from, you know, this direction. So, you know, our, our guys knew what to do. So it was, you know, it, it kicks in and then, you know, we return fire and, you know, either we eliminate the threat or, you know, they take off and mm-hmm. and it's over. So in the moment, it's it seems like time slows down. But, you know, once as the, as the platoon leader, you're having to, you know, direct all this stuff uh, in real time. But then when you get done, you're going back and you're doing what's called a mission uh, debrief. So anything that happens on the mission, you're writing notes, doing a report, mm-hmm. and you're sending that up to hire. Hire's collecting it, and they're using it for intel intel gathering, mm-hmm. right? And um, so you're trying to remember all this stuff once you get done and you, you kind of get out of the um, the uh, conflict and <laughs> you're looking at your watch. You know, as I, I know something that I try to develop is each time is as soon as something would pop off, uh, I would look at my wristwatch real quick. And then when it was over, I'd look at it again. I'd just annotate the wow. time. And, it, and it, it would seem like forever, but it was like gosh, some, it was like three minutes. And you're like, that seemed like forever. Wow. But it would be three minutes of time, and then and then it's, and then it's over. And you just drive on with your mission.
0: Jeez. It's, you talked about how you don't have a good memory now. I laughed about it earlier and said maybe it's because of, you know, I blame it on war. But I read something – recently i think it was from jordan peterson who was talking about um how the brain is designed to where it will remember what it has to remember to survive mm-hmm. and then if there's anything that it's like i actually don't need this to survive yeah it'll discard it mm-hmm. you know or i don't this is not like this is not going to be super important and so i would imagine it'd be interesting to see in the study of like most people don't go have never been in war so they have no idea what it's like to literally be in a life or death situation. And so mm-hmm. you're just talking about remembering even the minute and all these details that literally are life and death, minute like seconds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it just, it just makes you wonder what that does to the brain to where once your brain's been conditioned to be like, no, I literally need to know this, yeah. remember this, mm-hmm. versus just like day-to-day life, like just details. Yeah. Or it just I don't know. It mm-hmm. makes you wonder if there really is something to that. Um. So you guys are coming under enemy fire. See, how long were you in Afghanistan?
1: Uh, just under ten months, I believe. Wow, it's a long time.
0: Did y'all ever lose anybody? We
1: didn't. Uh, were you uh, ever thankfully?
0: Yeah, ever fearful of that, even for your own life?
1: Yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, we got into a uh, we got into a hairy situation. Um, a couple of times, a few times, we got into a really bad one. We we did we got ambushed, uh, and it was just. You know, it was uh, right outside of our our FOB, like eight hundred meters, so half a mile, and uh, we got ambushed from both sides: uh, RPG fire, small arms Jeez. fire. Um, You're in a tent, and at this time, yeah, we were in our vehicles. Okay, you were in at your vehicles. Okay. Yeah, we were out on patrol. We okay, just, okay, start, okay. just started the mission. Okay, um, and we got we got ambushed on a. It was a. All the routes are named, so we were on this route called Route Summit, which uh, was traveled north and south and um you know we our patrol our lead vehicle took an um uh, uh, rpg to the um to the cab actually penetrated it and then um i want to say that they're called like rpg seven it burns at like so many thousands degree and it's it's uh, the way it's designed is it um it's kind of you know concave and it'll hit and then that inverted cone will then change directions and penetrate pretty much anything um so it hit the cab of uh one of our uh single man vehicles which was called a, a husky it was if you think of a like a road grader mm-hmm. right so think of like a combat road grader is the best <laughs> way i can describe it it's um, it's very thin, so it's got uh, it's got capabilities like mine detection, uh, ground penetrating radar. It's got an interrogation arm that looks like kind of like a miniature, like I would say the easiest way to describe it would be like a backhoe arm. Mm-hmm. So, it would be leading the patrol, and then we would have our gun trucks, you know, securing it because it, you know, the guy in there has one job and it's to look, you know, be the the first eyes on on anything. Uh, that may look out of place, and, you know, he was, he was up there, the very first one, and and that rocket hit his vehicle, uh, penetrated the cab, so it knocked him out, Um, and, uh, you know, his, you know, his personal protection equipment saved his life, Um, and then immediately following that, you know, everything just clicked off. It was... Multiple RPG fire. Uh, they had uh, mortars locked in on us. Goodness. Uh, Small-arm fire. Uh, luckily, we didn't. If they had any IEDs, we didn't hit them, luckily. Uh, so then a second RPG hit one of my gun trucks. Um, gun truck in front of me was the uh, lead gun truck. Same thing. Hit on the most vulnerable vulnerable part of the uh, cab, penetrated, and the rocket traveled through the cab, basically across where you would – your sun visors are at, you know, mm-hmm. penetrated through there and then, you know, pulled all the shrapnel in uh, and hit the uh, – what we call the TC or the tank commander and the driver and then the uh, the gunner. Uh, so that vehicle was down and, and, you know, so within you're looking at – that's probably about 20 seconds. Uh, you're looking at four, uh, four injured – uh, soldiers who are going to require medevac. You know they're uh, they're unconscious, um, and so from there,
0: are you leading? And this is your platoon. These guys are in your platoon.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is you know when all this pops off, we're you know from there you have to secure the vehicles, um, set up security, and your priority are those injured soldiers. Is to get them you know basically out of harm's way. Uh, perform, you know, first aid on them until we can, you know, get them medevac uh, out of the out of the area.
0: And while you're trying to keep the bad guys off of you. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they're so they're they're, they're still, you know, um, trying to hit us. And you know, during this time, and we've got uh, we've got overhead support called in. So we had a team of uh, Kiowas with a, uh, an Apache helicopter. Uh, so they're coming in and and trying to provide security to us and um, I was telling you earlier about the uh, the 112th that was there so the 112th uh, when all this happened they were uh, sitting at the gate of Bob Wilson and they were going out to conduct another mission and they saw you know what was going on so you know here they come to help us which was awesome um, so they're coming down there setting up security uh, we're getting our injured guys pulled off the vehicles uh, every, I think we had, so three three out of the four were urgent, so they needed, you know, they were life-threatening injuries. So we had the, uh, our FOB was 800 meters away, so we're pulling, you know, pulling these guys out of the vehicle, our medics um, out there on the ground doing his thing, um, extremely good medic, probably credit him with saving their life, mm-hmm. and... We get them loaded up, uh, load them up in uh, one of the one uh, ths vehicle, and then they haul it back to Fob Wilson, and that's where they've got the uh, the medevac helicopter waiting on them. So we ended up medevacing four of them back to uh, Kandahar Airfield, where they have basically next level care outside of you know Medicare, next level care. Uh, the one individual, the first individual that was hit, um, in the uh, what we call the uh, the road grader, the husky. He, uh, I think he, f- I think he flatlined twice Jeez. on the helicopter. Um,
0: and these are guys and, you all
1: knew. Yeah, yeah. And he, like he said, actually, your family, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, he ended up um, being, you know, medically discharged out, um, and he lost about, I want to say, about forty percent of his skull. Jeez. So, you know, the, he had it, you know, artificial, like, replacement. Um, but, you know, the way that that rocket traveled through the cab, you know, he, he had his protective helmet on, but it's still just with the, the impact. Um, and the, other, the other two that were pretty bad off, one of them, he uh, lost an eye. Had, uh, he spent uh, months in Walter Reed back in uh here in the states uh the other one he didn't lose uh, lose an eye but he he his vision just from the shrapnel hitting him in the face um you know they spent you know multiple surgeries removing trying to remove as much as they could uh, but you know his vision's still to this day is you know not near what it what mm-hmm. it was um and then the gunner he was he was the least injured. He just, you know, received some, you know, shrapnel and burns to his legs. Hmm. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty hairy. And, you know, like like I told you earlier, I remember looking down at my watch, as soon as that pop happened and it was I think it was seven twenty seven AM. Wow. And when we got back to You ever think about that whenever you see seven twenty seven here back in civilian life? Yeah, all the time. But uh, we got done. It was – I think once we got everything cleared out, um, it was maybe 745, 750. Wow. So, Fast. Yeah. felt. I mean, and like I said, it feels like – I feel like you're out there half a day, and it's like 20 minutes, and it's done. So, um, you know, and that was another time where, you know, the, the training of the, the individuals kicked in, and – you know, you, you may not ever do it textbook right or what we call doctrine, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's, that's never going to be the case uh, mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're in combat. But, you know, just those guys knowing what their role is in, in mm-hmm. the platoon because mm-hmm. you, you have teams set up. You have uh, your, you know, your, your casualty evacuation teams. You know, you obviously have your medics that are going with you. You got your security teams. You got your, you know, what we call your aid and litter that they're pulling. You know, pulling the injured individuals out. They know which vehicle to put them on, uh, which vehicle is going to uh, set up security, which one's going to take them. You know, if we have to have a a medevac land, Mm -hmm. so you know, all those individuals knowing that, and you know, these are young kids. I mean, they're yeah, dude. They're I guess I'm young. I'm in my twenties, so upper twenties. 26, 27, but still, you know, we, we got kids out there that are like, they're 18, 19. Jeez.
0: It's hard to fathom that, man. And even thinking about, you know, I my, my grandfathers both fought in World War II. Uh, one of them was in France, and the one was in the Philippine Islands. Um, and they were both 18. And yeah. my grandfather, uh, on my mom's side, saw heavy fire, and he received a Purple Heart and uh, several other uh medals but 18 man mm-hmm. just like we can't even can fathom no. especially now I mean that generations a little different and we'll talk about that in just a minute but like yeah. um it's just crazy man to think about that
1: yeah I know my my uh my grandfather uh he was he fought more World, World War II and I remember him telling me the story that uh his his mom put him on the train and gave him a nickel that was it it's like, man, and, and I they don't didn't know the,
0: the world, man. There wasn't the yeah. Google back then. No, absolutely. these are farm boys, yeah,
1: yeah, it's crazy going
0: over on a boat for like a boat ride for two two weeks or whatever. Yeah.
1: And then we have the, the world at our fingertips, we're spoiled.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so, how do you think your time in Afghanistan that was the last time you were deployed, right? Overseas for combat, yes. How do you think that changed you? I ask that because I really believe that. Um, this is an original thought to me, this is just, but every time we do something, it does something to us, right? So like when you drink Mm -hmm. that water, you're doing something to the water, but it's doing something back to you, right? Or every time you work out, you know that, like Mm -hmm. you're doing something to the weights, it's doing something to you. So you don't go to war, you don't do anything without being changed. We won't leave this room without being somewhat impacted, changed in some way, whether we realize it or not. How do you think war changed you?
1: Appreciation for, I mean, Day to day, just internally appreciative of small things, hmm. and that's—I mean—you're looking at what—that was 2010. So a decade later, is it's still there, hmm. just as as fresh it was, as it was, you know, when I got home. Hmm. Um, and I think the biggest part is the the day to day stressors of life that. Um, sometimes it annoys me, uh, with, and that's not, it's not anybody's, it's not their fault, but you know, individuals that, um, you know, I, and just like you said, I think that everybody should experience a life changing situation just to, it, it gives you perspective. Yeah, yeah, Um, but you know, that, that day to day appreciation and, and people stress about So much. Oh, yeah, dude. And I do too. I I stress. I I find myself. It's easier to fall back into it. It is. But I I know that daily I sit there and I'll reflect. Like, I try to take, you know, my drive home from uh, work in Jonesboro or, you know, my drive to Jonesboro. And and a lot of time I just, I'll turn the radio off and just reflect. Mm -hmm. And some days, um, you know, like before I go to work, like, I've got a briefing coming up. Like I got to brief the chief of staff, and like oh, I got to sit in front of mm-hmm. these colonels and generals, and it's like you know, it makes you nervous, mm-hmm. you know, because you want to, you want to perform well, totally. You, you want to uh, to know your stuff and um, receive as few questions as possible because you've briefed mm-hmm. them well, and you know, and uh, you know, you get nervous about that and and just worked up about it. But then you know, it, it's always calming because. You know, I think back to that time, I'm like, it's not that bad.
0: It's not 727 a.m. in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the colonel and the generals are not going to pull up arms and start firing at me. <laughs> They're going to blow me up. So it it helps with that. It helps. That, that's what I use to to bring myself back and say, look, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. You know, it's going to be all right and if you mess up and you fail, you're going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. And so...
0: You talk about that on the, your CrossFit uh, page, too, which I want to talk about at CrossFit, but the idea of failure, you know, you have in here, you talked about it's a it's a philosophy um, of training, but also you said, you know, basically it, it can be compared to anything in life, but you said failure is going to happen. It's the brick and mortar of any great success.
1: Yeah. I mean... I guess you want me to elaborate on it.
0: Yeah, I'd love for you to.
1: <laughs> so I,
0: because, I mean, that's a big deal. Like, I read that, and it was good for me to read that because I think, I mean, for me, I mean, you talk about performance, right? Like, going into that meeting or whatever. Like, yeah. everyone who's listening, like, we all feel like we have to perform mm-hmm. in some way. And so, like, what we're afraid of is failure.
1: Yeah, naturally. You know, that's – and I, I can – I guess you can take this back to – you know, even to OCS or basic training um, is I learned a lot from failure going through basic training, going through OCS, and I think anybody can say that just going through life if they have um, a job that they are trying to do and, and let's say that they fail at it or they fail at a certain part of their job, they're going to remember that lesson more so in detail on what they did wrong and what they need to do next time to make it right through failure mm-hmm. versus you know hey first time go I got it right um yeah you know and that's I can hit on a hundred things with that just you know like um small small test in uh, aerosol school is a sling load test you have to go out identify deficiencies in a, a sling load that, you know, a helicopter is going to pick up and carry off. Mm-hmm. So you're going through, and the, the first time I went through the test, it's a hands-on test, and you identify deficiencies as uh, I, I failed it. And if you, you get one more chance, and if you fail the second time, you're out of the school. Mm-hmm. So obviously I didn't want to fail out of mm-hmm. the school. I was like, I had to, I had to learn it, and I remembered, you know, mm-hmm. exactly – I got the same, um, the same sling load uh, the second time. So the first time you have to get four out of five correct, and then the second time you get four and you have to get four out of four correct. So my last one was the one I failed on, and I breezed through it because mm-hmm. I had time to retrain mm-hmm. and and I learned from that failure. You know where where That's I failed huge. at, and and I just think that. I think that people just naturally learn more from failure than they do in totally just first time success. If I'd have gone through it first time uh, success, I couldn't tell you which one I, I couldn't tell you which one was harder, which one yeah. was easier. But I failed the first time, and it was I tell you right now it was called the shotgun, uh, two Humvees stacked side by side. Uh, they called it a shotgun, um, and that's the one I failed on. So mm-hmm. if I'd have been straight through, I'd have not remembered that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, I think that uh, I'm a pastor, I follow Jesus, and I, I think he's the best leader ever, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you really, if you ever just study leadership. And so, um, and that's the way he would even train his disciples is he would send them out on a mission, and they would fail, and then he would teach them. Mm-hmm. And so like, and it was, it's interesting when you look at it too, if you read it, because you have passages like in Mark and i where they're... You know, they come across this uh, this demon-possessed child. They try to cast out the demon. They can't do it. Everybody's like, you know, basically making fun of the disciples. And then Jesus comes in, cast out the demon. They're like, Jesus, how did you do that? And he said, well, this kind can only be cast out through prayer. That's a very simple lesson. Like, could Jesus not have told them that before they went out? Like, yeah. hey, just pray, and that'll do it. But he doesn't do it because he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant leader. Like, he knows. Like, they, they need to experience some failure and feel that. Mm -hmm. and then they're going to listen to me because they're going to feel the weight of it and I'm going to be able to teach and they're going to learn from it and next time, right, they're going to grow. So that's kind of what I hear you saying with these. So, um, well, let's pivot. I'd like to talk about CrossFit before you roll out of here. Um, You eventually uh, went on to become owner and operator of CrossFit Cathal. Tell me a little bit about CrossFit.
1: Well, so... I found CrossFit in Afghanistan, um, and it's, it's crazy because the uh, the individual that I kind of got introduced um, to it by, he, he works uh, with me in uh, the engineer battalion. He's one of our uh, readiness NCOs for the uh, 1036 company. So we had a little kind of everything over there is in a tent, right? So we had a little tent gym. Uh, next to our dining facility on Bob Wilson and I would go over there and I would I'd run on a treadmill or do something and it was just I mean you can imagine dusty concrete slab tent thrown up on it maybe some old barbells metal weights kettlebells pull-up bars you know it's like all homemade anyways I was going over there after I got off mission and um, everything was done and he was walking back and um he was sweaty and dirty and i was like what? i said like, what did you just do and he's like i just got done working out i was like oh, what did you do to get that nasty you look like you've been rolling around <laughs> 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 he's like i was doing some crossfit and i was like huh. crossfit okay so kind of did some research on it after that and like asked him the next day when he's gonna go back and do it again he's like i'll go back and do it you know tomorrow night and i get off my shift so i went with him um you know, and that was that. We did – we had some uh, some old kettlebells, a pull-up bar and dip station, um, and a medicine ball, and we did a little CrossFit workout out there on the and open concrete slab under the uh, beautiful star of Bob <laughs> <five> Wilson, <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> and it was love at first sight. It was. I was like, it broke me off. And I was like, man, that's good stuff.
0: It, CrossFit is uh, – I got this from your website, I think, but constantly varied – functional movements high intensity
1: yeah so the easiest way to explain that right so that's the fancy term uh the 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 phd definition <laughs> but it's uh, a lot of people get it uh you know they get intimidated by it and it it's confusing but it, it's strength and conditioning is all it is it's strength and conditioning that can be tailored to anybody's fitness level any age um and it's you know it's it's a very effective program um and if it wasn't I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been doing it for over a decade and I came from you know traditional uh lifting background I did some power power lifting your standard lifting um you know isolated movements but I I incorporated a lot of running and sprints into to my training as well and um you know when I when I found this and the effects of it 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 gave me what I was looking for in my training Mm. um and just, you know, everybody's different on what they're looking for in their training and their, you know, their exercise routine. Um, And it it gave me what I wanted. It's always challenging. Uh, You can always progress in it. And the fact that, you know, it can provide, you know, health and longevity for individuals, you know, that have never stepped foot in a gym Mm -hmm. uh, is great. And, you know, we see that a lot uh, in our affiliate is that, um, you know, that individual that's, they've never been in a gym before, and uh, I, it's hard to imagine the intimidation that they have coming into oh, a crossfit, yeah. you know, because we're, you, we're doing Olympic lifts, and, you know, we use the bumper plates, and, you know, that's what they're designed for, is to drop from overhead, or, you know, from a waist-high position, and, you know, people are sweating, and you know, group classes going and the music loud. So yeah, it's very, you're watching
0: the it's fitness very, documentary, the CrossFit Games. Yeah, you're like, right? I'm not so, that. Yeah, i so they watch that.
1: that. And I tell them, and I was like, look, I said, how did you know? I ask everybody that joins us, said, how do you hear, how did you hear about us? They're like, well, I saw it on TV. I was like, did you see it on ESPN? <laughs> They're like, yeah. And I was like, all right, let me tell you something. That's the NFL of mm-hmm. what we do. I was like, their NFL, Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. NBA. Mm-hmm. I was like, have you ever seen the movie, The Sandlot? That's us. I was like, we are here to create health, wellness, longevity. I said, you know, we want you to be able to do this when you're 60, 70. You know, I want you to be an asset to your family when you get older and not a liability. Hmm. So we can do that through functional fitness and, you know, decent nutrition. I was like, that's our goal here. I was like, you know, you're going to get into it and you're going to find things that you're good at. You're going to find things that you are not good at. I said, but, you know, we can we can hammer weaknesses and we can progress in them. Uh, but as, as soon as you, you know, get somebody to grasp the concept, then they're usually sold on it if yeah. that's what they're looking for. Yeah. So
0: I know how a typical gym works um, for you guys. I know you're different than just – other gems and the fact that I'm guessing you don't just walk into CrossFit and just start picking up stuff and doing whatever you want. Or do you?
1: No, no, you, you don't. Are you talking about just like is it like wise? Well or?
0: do you just do you in in my mind at least with you have like a, a coach or a group that you yeah. participate in. Yep. Is so is that right?
1: Yeah. So it all of our, our work we have class times. Okay. Um, we have early morning, mid morning, noon, and then evening classes. So all of our classes are coach coach led. So okay. all of our coaches have to have at least their level And one the classes
0: depend coaches. on your like where that person is, right? Like someone like me who might be a beginner, I'm gonna be in a totally different class. Nope. Okay, so it's mixed you'll be, you'll be mixed. Okay. So right.
1: you that's and you know that's what the coach is for. Um, you know, every class has fitness level, strength level, ability level. Um, from beginner all the way up to you know veteran, I guess you would say. Um, each class, so each class is run by a coach, which is at least has their CrossFit Level One certification, and every class does the same workout. So the five a.m. is doing the same workout as the four thirty p.m. Um, now, which class you come to just depends on your schedule. Okay, so maybe. You have to work all day. You come to the 5 a.m. regularly. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you get off at, you know, you have the day off and you want to come to the 9, you want to sleep in. So they're doing the same workout. Mm -hmm. But typically we see, you know, the population of a class is going to be the same people depending on their schedule. Uh, So, you know, all the classes are coach-led and they all do the same workout. So, you know, what we do is uh, we we follow a programming template. um, And a lot of people, you know, they – they kind of look at CrossFit as like, well, they just do this crazy weird stuff all the time. It's – there's a – There's a method behind method, the madness. There is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's it's all based on, you know, how that coach who's doing the programming wants to program. Some, some affiliates want to program more towards strength. They're more strength biased. Some want to program more towards gymnastics, uh, body weight movements. Like we say gymnastics, it's like not what you see on TV. We're talking about like pull-ups sit-ups uh the lovely burpee mm-hmm. uh, things like that and then um, you know some of them are more programmed towards uh monostructural which is endurance like running rowing biking mm-hmm. things like that um, but you know a very well-rounded program is going to include all of those across a programming cycle so it depends on you know how long is your cycle what are you looking at for this cycle is it a three-month cycle is it six months maybe you're doing a month uh focused towards a certain olympic lift to get people better technique at that lift or to get your more advanced athletes who have the technique getting them stronger at that lift so you know like referring back to what you said you know is there a class for you uh, as a beginner versus, you know, advanced is like, no, you would be in the same class. So if, you know, we're focusing one, one month towards the, the lift, the cleaning and jerk, and you've never done the lift before, but, uh, I have somebody who's been doing CrossFit for seven years who is, you know, very good at the lift. Um, you know, that class, he's going to spend the class time, um, lifting heavier, trying to, get heavier and see, you know, if he's gotten stronger in the lift, whereas, you know, our coach would be more focused towards you on a lightweight and making sure that you understand and can perform the mechanics of the lift consistently. Hmm. Because we want to see consistency in the movement before we start loading you, Mm -hmm. whether the intensity load, whether that's, you know, more reps faster or heavier weight. Yeah. So, You're going to be kind of, you're going to receive more attention uh, during something like that versus, you know, our, our more veteran lifters, but you're both receiving, you're, you're getting the stimulus that we're looking for. You're getting your technique better, your mechanics better. Um, He's getting stronger. And then, you know, you're, you're using that building block. So, you know, maybe a year down the road, then your mechanics are good and, you're comfortable getting a little bit heavier, a little bit heavier.
0: So, so you're meeting people where they are. Yes. Yeah. What is the, um, obviously you can't get stronger, you can't get bigger, you can't lose weight, you can't without embracing the suck, right, as yeah. you used in the, and, and, and it's in your bio. Um, and I totally agree with that. Like, you know, we do have a generation that thinks, like, um, if it's hard, it's bad and I shouldn't yeah. do it if it hurts it's bad where's the line how do we know the line between like um, okay this is a good pain mm-hmm. and this is a bad pain do you, is there a way of knowing that
1: I think that depends on the uh, you know the individual um, you, you have to know that you're you're training um, you know and if if you're and we have a lot of members who compete they'll, they'll do competitions um, and you know and in competition, you know, the, the founder of, uh, CrossFit, Greg Glassman, he said, you know, men will die for points, uh, out on the, the battlefield or battlefield competition. Mm-hmm. So you can relate that, you know, to, uh, you know, a CrossFit competition or football, you know, they'll sacrifice their bodies for mm-hmm. one more point or to win. But, you know, in training, you have to look at it. And I always tell people who want to have the conversation with me it says, you know, what are you training for? You know, are are you training to go to the CrossFit Games? <laughs> like, let's let's be that's honest. That's what Bill ourselves. wants to train for. <laughs> so let's be honest with ourselves. Are you training for that, or are you training to be healthier? Are you training to be stronger? You know, I just want to looking, make sure
0: that my kid's not able to beat me up when he's a teenager. Yeah, and my boys. That's what I'm aiming for.
1: That, see, that, and that's a that's a goal right there, right? Yeah. To keep up with your kids. Yeah. So. You know, like, and I tell, because a lot of our members are, are, uh, you know, they're, they're my age or older. And the body requires rest to recover, more so now at my age than it did back when I was in my 20s. And that's a very important part. So you have to listen to the body when you're training, whether you're training CrossFit, whether you're training powerlifting, bodybuilding, whether you're endurance runner. The body needs to rest and recover. And I think
0: we've got to educate people on that. Because I think most people don't know what they're listening for or what they're looking yeah. for. And honestly, like, that's what scares me, like, with not just CrossFit, but that's what keeps me from doing anything. Like, probably probably not reaching my potential is the fear of, like, okay, I'm going to push myself too hard and I'm going to, like, mess up my knee and then I'm going to be out for six months yeah. or my lower back or whatever. And so yeah, I don't know if there's a, a solution to that. Maybe you could well, write a book or somebody uh, could.
1: Oh, man, I no, writing a book, that's – Trust me, you don't want me to do that. <laughs> the, you know, I look at that and people, there's a there's a big stigma out there about CrossFit. And it, and it really, uh, I was just up in Park City, uh, Utah with the family. We went skiing up there. Uh, highly recommend it if you ever get a chance. Gorgeous up there.
0: i have got a friend that keeps uh, trying to get me to go to Salt Lake. So this is beautiful. It so, is.
1: Yeah. But uh, Park Lake City, uh, there's a, a CrossFit affiliate up there. There's a very well-known in the CrossFit world, Chris Spaler. is what we consider an OG of CrossFit. And uh, I've followed him ever since um, I've started CrossFit just because he's, uh, he's got a sweet haircut like mine, and uh, he's just kind of an underdog. He's like 140 pounds mm-hmm. strong. Uh, he's an athlete. And I got to visit his uh, his affiliate, and, you know, it was talking to him with uh, some of their coaches, and they were asking about, you know, CrossFit down here in the south. I said, you know, I said, "There's more. There's still more of that stigma down south." I said, "It's you know, it's more widespread, but it still receives that. If you do CrossFit, you're going to hurt yourself." Mm-hmm. It's like you can hurt yourself doing anything. Um, I can't tell you how many long-distance runners I know that have injured themselves, you know, their knees, or you know, heavy lifters that have injured themselves, you know, doing heavy lifts. And that goes for any sport, you know, that that you do. There's going to be injuries in training, but the way I look at it is if you train smart, if you listen to your coaches or you listen to the guidance that you're following, you're going to be better off. Yes, the injury, the possibility for injury still exists, but, I mean, I've been injured doing CrossFit. I've had a back injury. I've had an elbow injury. I've had a knee injury, Uh, pulled muscles, you know, you name it, but I guess you're looking at, you know, for me, it's it's risk and reward. Mm. Is am I going to risk injuring myself? Yes. What's the reward? My health and wellness. You know, that's that's how I see it. You know, do I want to continue this and maybe risk a tweaked knee every now and then or tweaked back? I can get that fixed mm. through you know medical experts or uh, PT or do I just want to give up and start, you know, leading an unhealthy lifestyle and develop chronic disease? And, mm-hmm. and you're looking at, I mean, you can Google chronic disease and sure. within under a second the, the results you get and and research on that. Um, and, and that's what CrossFit's fight has been for, and they've really dug into it over the past few years is the fight against chronic disease and, and the uh, – you know what we see in America with the the Western diet uh, and the high sugar intake uh, is more of an education on that and trying to educate the the general public on you know what that lifestyle can lead to. Um, hmm. And it's you know it's scary if you look at the numbers. If you ever you know do any research on that, and you look at numbers. Uh, it is very scary. I have you know I have friends that are my age uh, that have you know already developed you know, these chronic diseases Mm -hmm. that, that are easily reversed. Mm -hmm. Um, and like it's not gonna happen overnight, Right. but you know, it's something that can be fixed through, you know, self-effort.
0: Yeah. Yeah. we'll, We'll try to put a bowl in this conversation with maybe this question. Um, what advice or encouragement would you give to the person out there who is battling some of the health issues maybe they do feel fatigued and they have low energy and you know they look at a guy like you who's obviously fit, you're in shape, and um like, oh man, yeah, like I could go do that stuff if I look like that guy, yeah, or whatever. What advice can you give to those people who maybe they're they're listening like I want to, I really do want to, but man, I just they haven't pulled the trigger yet
1: I would say that you just have to jump in. Um, You know, I hear a lot of people, people talk to me about, I've had numerous conversations about people uh, wanting to um, start CrossFit and whether it's friends that live outside of Paragould and, you know, other parts of the state. And they say the most common line is, "Ah, i got to get in a little bit better shape before I start CrossFit. I'm like, that is the wrong wrong Mm -hmm. answer. That's the wrong answer whether it is you... Have to get in better shape before you start running you have to get in better shape before you start you know going to any gym or doing any type of of fitness routine is you you just have to get off the couch and get off the carbohydrates you know get off the couch get off the carbs um and and you have to know and, and it's it's hard because the the human body wants to they want to see instant results, right? We're Mm -hmm. in that instant gratification, right? So you're looking at how many years did it take to get you to this point? You know, years of just, yeah. Randy,
0: I want you to Amazon prime my fitness. Exactly. Right.
1: Overnight delivery. It doesn't happen like that's, and that's discouraging. It really is because you get in there. Um, and, and I tell, and it's nothing, I, I guess I can say it. It's the males, the male ego in our, um, affiliate is what gets a lot of people mm-hmm. is because we'll come in and we'll think that we can do what we did at 18 mm-hmm. and you can't, you have to start and you have to take baby steps. And I tell everybody, I say, you know, Hey, give it, give it 90 days and tell me how you feel. Yeah. I say at least give it 90 days and you can make an educated decision at 90 days. That's good. Um, but that's, that's the best piece. I guess I could say is, you know, you have to, you have to know that it's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take if you don't take the first step, get off the couch, it's never going to happen. Yeah. And then the second piece to go with that is once you take that step, you have to be consistent. Yeah. And consistency does not mean 7 days a week. Maybe start off, I've told plenty of members, come 2 days a week for 6 weeks, bump it up to 3 days the next 6 and just create a schedule to where you can stay consistent and something you can stick to and then that's going to build so it's definitely yeah. consistency
0: that's good and for those listening if you want a great example of taking that first step go back and listen to the anthony allen podcast uh, a guy who was in a motorcycle wreck woke up with the left side of his body not working and his jaw short i guess wired shut and one of his legs was amputated and uh, that guy was a marathon runner, all of that, and then just had to relearn how to, one step at a time, get yep. back into the gym, get back into running, all of that. And so um, you look at guys like that, and you're like, if they can do it, like anybody can do it. Absolutely. So, um, where, where can they find CrossFit? If they want more information, uh, interested in joining maybe the Vox? Whatever.
1: So you can go to our website. Um, we've got a lot of information on there, CrossFitCathol.com or you can stop by our affiliate which is uh just off 721 road mm-hmm. right across uh, from green county tech high school you can't miss it uh, big gray building it has got a huge sign on the side um, so you can stop by during any of our class times uh, contact information is on the website uh, my number's on there so you can reach out to me email or phone call and be happy to give you all the information you want
0: Excellent, man. Randy, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for making time to come on, man.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it.
0: All right, so Randy Vest has left the building. I don't know about you, Bill, but um, just hearing his story about uh, his time in Afghanistan, it also just gives me a greater appreciation um, for my life. I mean, that honestly changes my whole day, uh, just hearing that story, uh, because it's so easy for me to forget... um, just how good we have it over here you know and to take for granted just some of the little simple things that he talks about that he now appreciates so uh randy thanks for your service uh and thanks for your time um hey if you're still listening to this i want to encourage you to find us on itunes and to uh give us a review or a five-star rating that'll help more people find us and learn about uh just the great folks living here in Paragold. Also, um, if you don't already know, we are on all the different social media platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find us, follow us there. I also have a a website, ParagoldPodcast.com, and you can subscribe to our email list if you have not already done so. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.